0: Next we have
1: Gary. If you'd like to ask your questions, Gary, go ahead, please. Thank you, Hi is there, Tom. Hi Gary. Okay. Right. Uh, right. I'm going to set the scene again like I did last time. Uh, I'd like to ask you about how a sleeping bison relates to your quantum mechanics experiments. Obviously that needs some explanation. Uh, some time ago I saw a video of a Chinese Qi energy master who was able, on demand, to make animals lie down and go to sleep. In the demonstration, he stood about 50 metres away from a small herd of bison and after just a minute or so of focusing on them and gently waving his hand back and forth in their direction, sure enough, one by one, these bison fell to their knees and then laid down and closed their eyes. It was very impressive and he did the same thing with different animals, in multiple challenges laid down by the documentary team and who was able to do it every time. In MBT terms, you will no doubt tell me that there is no invisible Qi energy and that what is actually happening is that the Qi Master is using his intent to bring about this outcome. Consciousness A, the Qi Master, is directing his intent towards Consciousness B The bison and there is an exchange of information happening between them which brings about perception of something happening in virtual reality Uh, i'll come back to this but now turning to your quantum mechanics experiments uh, as with the original double slit experiment the setup is used to show the behavior of a fundamental part of the rule set and i think i remember you saying in one or more of your videos That it is designed to show how consciousness deals with a potential contradiction in logic in the way that the physical VR operates. So that under one set of conditions, photons or electrons have to act like particles, and in another set of conditions they have to act like waves. I realise that there are no physical matter particles and what is really going on is the way that consciousness handles the data and deals with the logic behind how the virtual reality is rendered. And perceived by others as information. Nevertheless, looked at from within the context of the VR, something is happening. A photon is released and is either observed and measured or not according to the protocols of the experiment. But the point is one of the rule set rules is occurring for the virtual reality to to be rendered to you, the experimenter. Mm -hmm. Now returning to the sleeping bison. Although what I'm about to suggest is clearly impractical, if it were theoretically possible to apply such an experimental setup to the exchange between the Chi master and the bison, do you think that his intent, which he is calling Chi energy, could be observed at a quantum, uh, in quotes, physical level? The Chi master is really demonstrating an example of a psi phenomenon and I'm wondering if all psi-phenomenon like this, or Yuri Geller's bending spoons, could, at the quantum level, be measured or observed, just as your photon is in the experiments. Something is clearly happening, and I'm wondering if, within the context of the virtual reality, the so-called chi energy is more than an invisible non-physical intent, and is actually a measurable aspect of the rule set, like the photon in the experiment. I think you once described the double slit experiment as showing the threshold between the physical and the non-physical. And I'm therefore wondering if the so-called chi energy and all psi phenomena represent that threshold between the two. Is it possible to drill down and identify that gateway moment where the non-physical appears to us as physical, or is it simply impossible to isolate it like that?
2: Um... Yeah. <laughs> it's it's um what you'll find is that what what we measure are um our effects. Okay. What we measure are effects. So we have a, a person standing there and then we have buffalo lying down on the ground. And because the person says he's going to make the buffalo lie down, and he walks out into a field where a bunch of buffalo are. Then all the buffalo lie down. We see that there's an effect between that being and the buffaloes, but we only see the effects. The mechanism is not known. The mechanism is is um, the rule set. Okay, it's how the rules are done. So it's not it's not that there is some thing going on that that uh, person is making little uh chi you know uh subatomic or quantum quantum particles you know run over and and somehow affect the buffalo's quantum particles that make the buffalo go down it's that we see the we see the effect we see the buffalo lying down going to sleep we can measure that, and we can measure that in any way. We can just stand there in a the field and watch it. That's a measurement of it. Or we can measure it down at the micro level. We can measure it in the uh, buffalo's central nervous system. And if we wired that buffalo, we could see that buffalo would start secreting different kinds of hormones like they do when they get tired, and different kinds of things would be going on. And we could look at that process going on in buffalo biology that leads to the buffalo of, you know, going down uh, on on the ground and lying down and closing their eyes. So we could look at that process because that's buffalo biology is just rule set stuff. So we could watch the rule set as it applies to buffalo biology at the micro level if we wanted to. But that's not really any different than just standing in a field watching the buffalo lie down and assume that there's stuff going on in, in buffalo biology and just seeing the result. So yes we could do that but we're not going to see little little uh uh particles zinging from the the head of the of the uh um you no know, master there over to the to the head of the buffalo making the buffalo uh, fall over you know it's not that there's a tra- that there's a transfer of of physical stuff it's not a it's not a physical reality it's a virtual reality so we have the master and he can with his intent modify the things going on according to the rule set inside the buffalo to encourage the buffalo to take a nap you know maybe he's singing a little lullaby to the buffalo and makes the buffalo tired and you know wants to go to sleep but yes you can do all sorts of things with your intent um, that modifies future probability and with a, an animal in some ways it's much easier because animals don't have a lot of, of competition going on in there you know if you can give some kind of a strong signal it's not that hard it's it's, e- it's easier to dominate an animal's view of reality than it is to dominate another person's view of reality because the person has so much more connections and so much more things going on and stuff you'd have to you'd have to uh soothe if you will to get them to lie down and go to sleep but certainly people have calming energy on other people you know if you're all up in a whip there are some people that can come over and be very good at getting you to settle down just from you know their intentions just from their energy, if you will, again, energy's all got quotes around it. You know, energy is just what we call stuff that makes a difference. So I'd say that, that in all of physics, we have that same thing. Everything that we measure is an effect, not the process, not the reason why. It's not the, uh, um, you know, it's not the thing in itself that we ever measure. It's the effect of the thing in the set of, on other things. It's the effect of the thing of the thing on something that has a rule set connection, and we can affect that and it changes. So even and we, the problem with us in science is that we we forget that we're measuring effects and we make up stories about why that effect happened. In other words, we make up causes and those causes, are just stuff we make up but we begin to believe that the cause has to be there in a physical thing so we measure we do the Millikan oil drop experiment and we and we look at uh, electrons hitting something and notice that they actually carry momentum they you can move things with that electron beam and so they must have mass and we can tell that they do have charge because we can get uh, magnets and, and move them around so then we say well it's a little chunk of mass with a charge well that's us making something up to to explain the results we get but nobody ever measures the electron they only measure the effects of it and it's the same with the with the mind and the buffalo you can see the effects and you could see them right down to to the uh you know the tiniest level in the buffalo whatever makes buffaloes lie down you'd see that process because i'm sure there's biochemical processes going on there and neurons and other things that that go into sleep mode for the buffalo and you could measure all that stuff but uh, again you're just measuring effects and to make up a story of how that happens oh the master takes sleep energy And because we can't see it, then it has to be something that's not seeable. So it's tiny little particles of energy that we can't see anyway, because we're already, uh, we already believe that there's all kinds of invisible energy around. You know, we see it with magnetism and, uh, you know, electric forces and stuff. There's all this, this sort of magic energy that you can't see, smell, touch, feel. So why not have the, some magic energy go from the, uh, You know, the master over to the buffalo and somehow rearrange the buffalo's biology to make it go to sleep. Well, that is what materialists do when they try to create a material cause for everything because they know everything has to have a material cause. So they make those assumptions, create a material cause, and they feel much better now because they don't have this mystery that there's something non-physical going on. Well, in virtual realities, you don't have physical causes. You have informational causes. You have rule set causes. Lots of things affect other things according to the rule set. And one of those things is intent modifies future probability. So that would be my, my answer to it. You know, all the things that you laid out first and your understandings were all absolutely correct. There was, there was none of that, but maybe the part that's missing is realizing in a virtual reality, there are no physical there are no physical transfers of things from here to there that have to be done to create the effect. You have effects because there's a rule set. That's why you have effects. The reason the Millikan oil drop experiment worked was because there's a new rule set. It said that, uh, you know, charge is going to be affected uh, on this oil drop and gravity is going to make the oil drop go down and that charge will repel it. Positives will repel. Opposites will attract. So you have all that rule set stuff. And then you make up the story about mass and charge. And there is no not necessarily any mass or charge. Those are stories we make up to explain things. But what's good about physics is in that same concept of mass and charge explains all kinds of things. Not just that one thing explains a lot of things. So we say, well, that's a pretty good model. It explains a lot of stuff. <clears throat> excuse me, but then it doesn't explain any, everything because then you end up with a double slit experiment, and that mass and charge thing just doesn't help you at all so then you see that the model's incomplete okay so you can make go ahead
1: but in your in your double slit experiment, your intent is to send a photon through your sort of you know your setup mm-hmm. Um, but you're saying, but you, earlier you were saying you can't see the particles happening. You can't see, all you see is the effect. So are you not, are you saying you can't see your photon? You
2: no, you-, you don't. No, you don't see, there is no photon. What you see is the is the the results of the rule set. The re, rule set tells the, the uh, <coughs> rendering engine how to render, you know, the next delta T. So when you have that particle heading toward those double slits because of the way the experimental setup is it creates a logic that that a particle will go through a slit you know if you if you see how the actual double slits made up it's not that they fire one particle and somehow that particle has to go from one slit to one slit to the other we just shorten it and say that it's like that but it's not really like that it's firing out all kinds of particles and there's just some random probability that some of them are going to go through one slit and some will go through the other. You know, it's that sort of thing. Some of them hit the the barrier between the slits. Some of them hit the you know, the surrounding area. There's just all these things. But when one comes through there, then that one will go through and will hit the screen that's on the other side. So we look at the, look at the ones that go through. We just say we fire at it and it has to go through one slit or the other, but that's, that's, a metaphor again it's not uh, actually what's going on and then because that's the case it's it's logic by the setup that some particles will go through slit a and some particles will go through slit B. that's just the way it is because the setup is just spewing particles in a at a, a what a uniform distribution all over those you know toward those slits at such a rate that that happens and it happens slow enough that we can we can um follow the effects of individual particles so we have that and it says that if there is nobody looking and you can't and you don't measure where it's going through then we're going to place those particles on the screen in a particular pattern and that'll be a wave pattern and we're going to do that so we don't have a a a, uh, you know kind of a, uh we're not connecting Okay, through the wave theory, which we know, you send light through two slits, you know, just shine a laser at those two slits and you'll get a diffraction pattern. And there's nothing that says that those, those, uh, photons are somehow interacting with each other because there's so many of them and it's, it's because of the interaction of photon to photon when it's a whole bunch of them going at the slits like from a laser beam, then, uh, you know, they're not interacting. They're all independent. So if they're all independent, then why would a whole bunch of them do anything different than one so you see there's a there's a problem there you've got a you've got a a discontinuity in the reality so what the system has to do is take those particles and just make spots on the screen appear in a diffraction pattern one for each particle because that's what the logic of the system says so it's just broken down into logic you get to the first choice that says You know a particle comes out and again. we're shortcut. It has to go through a or b All right So the system reaches up and it does a random draw from a binary distribution and it says I picked a on that random draw All right, so then if you have a detector you'll get a detection at a Whereas if it did that random draw and got B you'd get a detection at B Now once you have that detection and you have the information then the system says well it's been detected so what we're going to get is a particle going to hit a screen right behind a slit so you know and you can you know you can uh, it's that's just the way the rule set says it's going to work because that's the way the rule set says particles work but if we don't know what slit it goes through now you have the same logical condition of just light going through slits and when light goes through slits one at a time, many at a time, doesn't matter. They're all independent. Light goes through slits, which it gets diffraction patterns. So if there's information, there's no information what slit it goes through, now you're back to the logic of diffraction patterns. And the system will just place dots on the screen, particle by particle, as, every, as each particle goes through, it'll place them on the screen, and it'll place them in a diffraction pattern, because that's the answer for diffraction patterns so again it's another uh, random draw if if it uh if the which way data is known okay then you take a random draw from this distribution which is a single distribution you know it lands behind the slits you know it lands right behind the slits otherwise you take it from this distribution which is a random draw out of a diffraction pattern probability And you draw one of those, and okay, it landed a certain place with that random draw, and that's where you put it on the screen. So that's what's going on. There's, You see, it's just rule set. There don't have to be any particles at all. There's just logic. There's logic and there's rules. So you look at the logic and understand the rules. You can predict the result.
1: Okay. Thanks, Tom, for that. I'll, I'll listen back to that and concentrate on it a bit more. (laughs)
2: Yeah, it's a hard idea to get when you come from a culture that believes in materialism, because you want, uh, you know, you want to have a a source, this idea that it's virtual reality, and it just appears that way, because that's the way the rules are, you know, it's kind of hard to get a grip on. But that's the way all of, you know, all of science, look at the, look at all the things in physics that are fundamental. Okay, look at space, time, charge, spin, gravitation. We've probably missed a few, but those are basic things, right? And all of physics is built out of those things. You know, we get motion by, you know, delta x over delta t. You know, we get velocities, we get distances and rates and that kind of thing. So, but the x's, the t's, the charges, this you know the the x's themselves the position space all of these things have no cause they're all causeless there's no material cause for any of that you know what's the cause of time what's the cause of of uh, space what's the cause of gravity what's the cause of charge it just is if you're in physics they'll just tell you it's just the way it is it's there is no reason for it. So the, all the basics of physics that they use in physics to calculate everything else doesn't have any causes. Why not? In a physical reality, everything needs a physical cause. But in order to generate that physical reality, you have to have a whole bunch of basic things that have no physical cause. They're all mystical things. You know, time is mystical, charges, they're all things just come from nowhere, and they just are. And now you can you can create a science of physics based on these things that just are. Well, these things that just are are just the rule set. That's why they're just are. They're, those are rules in the rule set, part of the initial conditions by which the simulation was evolved in the first place. That's where they come from. So otherwise, you know all science is built on top of a mystical assumption that that, uh, all the fundamental things just exist without any cause at all. But yet, if you are, if you're further along down that branch in physics and you have something and you say, yes, you know, every night I see pink elephants flying around my house and nobody would believe you. And if they say, you know, well, you know, I can't see them. I can't smell them. You can't trap them. So that's non-falsifiable. That's bogus. It's no more bogus than where does time come from? Where do you know? Where does gravity come from? It's just a rule in the rule set. You can't, you can't, uh, you know, falsify it either. It just is. And then we make up these models and we call them electrons. But we just make that up because it. It works. It's a model, right? We make up models, and the models work. So we start to believe that they're real. And then we find quantum mechanics uh, where they're not real. If you go over to CERN where they smash atoms together and you try to see particles as little chunks of mass with charges on them, you can't get anything right. All your answers are wrong. You know, You can't predict anything that's going to happen in the experiment. But if you see all those things the way you would see them in information, where an electron is a point, With the attributes of mass and charge, that's the way you'd model an electron in a simulation. Well, then you can calculate, you can use quantum mechanics and calculate the results of experiments. And you can understand why those things, you know, come out to do once you smash these things together. But as long as you start with little chunks of mass with charge, you can't get anything right because it's not a good model for that. Now you're digging too deep into it and the, and the model fails. Well, that says your model isn't correct. It's, it only works for a certain regime and it doesn't work in general. So it's not really right. It's not a general explanation. It's, you see, so that's, that's the point. So we don't want to make little particles coming out of the master's brain and flying through space over to the buffalo and rearranging neurons in the buffalo's head. Unless we're materialist and then, then we just have to do that. If you're a materialist, then that you just have to have some kind of, of causal, physical causal connection between the two. But it's so much easier to just say it's the rule set that that happens. He's modifying the future probability of the way the buffalo works and the buffalo's central nervous system is kind of a simple system. And because it's a rather simple system, it's easier to To modify it and manipulate it because it's a simple, straightforward system. So that's, that's what's, that's why I come to my, you know, the theory the way I do is because it's just simpler than the other theories. It's simpler than, than the other assumptions. You, you reduce the number of assumptions a little lower, but mine is just a model as well. I'm not saying mine is the, you know, last truth. It's just is as good as it can provide answers for, and if it can't answer something, then it's got holes in it. So that was a longer answer than I was,
1: I was anticipating.
2: <laughs> yeah, but hopefully it was a thorough enough. It, hopefully it was a thorough enough answer that it, uh, you know, worked for a lot of people. You know, when you ask that question, there's another couple of hundred people that are going to see this. They've had lots of questions similar to that that they really don't understand. So I try to answer all those questions at once. Does that clear it? Does that clear it up for you? Does that kind of? It does. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome.
1: The question is uh, more practical than theoretical about the thorny issue of meditation difficulties. So I've been meditating for many, many years, sometimes uh, intermittently. But in the last few years since I read MBT, I've meditated consistently almost every day for 40 minutes to an hour. Uh, I've tried different approaches such as mantras and focusing on the breath but I mainly work now with binaural beats. Mm-hmm. I've reached a point where I can become deeply relaxed quite quickly and I can quiet my mind successfully so that so that I'm not plagued by endless random thoughts popping into my mind. At the start of each session I set my intention before I begin, that I'm not distracted by thinking about it during the meditation and my aim is always the same to explore the larger consciousness system I usually say to myself something like I don't know what I don't know and I would like to find out about the LCS from direct experience so that it mm-hmm. becomes my truth I would like to receive an alternative data stream from another reality frame so that I can experience the non-physical realm in a visual way and have confidence that it really exists. Mm -hmm. And then I start the session by repeating the words, let go, let go, let go, I of this data stream until my mind is quiet and focused and I'm almost unaware of my body. So far, so good. Except I never experience anything except feeling relaxed and looking at the inside of my eyelids or a general blackness if I'm in a darkened room. It has become increasingly disappointing and frustrating, and after remembering previous advice you have given, I find myself thinking, come on, LCS, just give me something to work with, a blob of blue light or a string of dots or something that I can engage with and perhaps develop further. I'd be lying if I said I was not aware of other people's accounts of amazing experiences because they are almost impossible to avoid once you get into this kind of community. But I would say I'm realistic and pragmatic and I'm not holding on to an expectation for a dramatic peak experience like an amazing lucid dream where I can be the hero in my own sci-fi movie. I try not to block myself with those kinds of big expectations. I just want to experience some little thing that I can, can at least start with because I've almost reached the point where I'm thinking maybe I'm one of those people who do need to take psychedelics to blast through <laughs> what blocks are holding me back just so I can experience at least once a more expansive universe and have the confidence that it really really exists and it's worth carrying on with the effort. Any suggestions Tom?
2: Yes. <laughs> Even if you took the psychedelic substance, doesn't mean that you'd end up with that conclusion that, oh, okay, I did experience it once. You'd probably end up with the conclusion was, did I really experience that or was that just a drug working on my, my uh, consciousness system? You know, is it all just a hallucination? So you'd still be stuck without any information that was straightforward. Your, the problem you're having is one of getting into your intuitive space rather than your intellectual space. You're doing all the right things in the right order at the right time. You know, all of that's good. Your process is excellent. Your attitude is good. Everything is good, but it's all being managed by the intellect. You've read the books. You've seen the movies. You've done whatever. You have the process down, and now you're going to apply it but it's your intellect that's in charge and applying the process and doing the thing and waiting for that moment to come to you where you get, you know, a different data stream. But it's the intellect that's sitting there and waiting for that to happen. And that is the problem. As long as it's the intellect that's engaged, nothing much is going to happen. So I would suggest that instead of kind of priming yourself for a particular experience. You know, I want to go. I want to experience something LCS, give me something to experience. And then you're waiting for it. Your intellect's just sitting there waiting for something to happen. And nothing happens because you're connecting with your intellect, not with your intuition. And you're probably a left-brain person. You probably, uh, you know, work at jobs that require you to uh, think logically. You know, you're probably a very typical product of our Left brain culture that tends to, you know, live your life through your intellect, and your intellect, your intellect makes all the choices, and judges all the value of things, and it's just the way we are here in the West. There's lots of people like you who have a similar have a similar process. Go ahead.
1: That's the strange thing, Tom. I'm uh, I'm an artist. <laughs> <laughs> Great,
2: an intellectual artist. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> okay. You know, yeah, that is interesting that you're an artist, but you know, you can be an artist and you can learn to get into an intuitive space. Like when you're creating, you can learn that process for a, partic- a particular thing. Like if you paint or do music or whatever your art is, you've kind of learned the process that you get into and you realize your intellect's not in charge there. That creative process is coming. Through the intuitive side, not through the intellectual side. If you intellectualize your art, then your art may be, wow, look at that great technique, but it's not, wow, that really moves me. You know, things that move other people come out of a space other than just great technique. It comes out of the intuitive space. But that doesn't mean that you can take that same, that you can do that same thing in other areas. It doesn't mean that you're not You know, and you don't approach things intellectually when you do something else. But I would suggest that you go into that state, just the same process you're doing, the the binaural beats are fine, you know, the time you're putting into it is great, and just sit there with the idea, not that you want something to happen. That's an intellectual thought, and it'll block it. But you sit there, and you're just going to experience whatever happens. Whatever you see or whatever happens, you're just going to experience it. And then, as things come, as as things come to you, say visually or oral, you know, auditory or any way that feeling, whatever it is, engage them. Don't question them. Don't say, "Oh, I'm sitting here and okay, now I see a, you know a, a little streak of light over here or something." That's just probably my eyes just a dark adapting, and you know, that's you intellectually judging what it is giving it a reason, and then setting it aside, throwing it away. Or I must imagine that, so that's not real. I'm, I'm looking for something that's real, not just something that's my imagination. That's your intellect, judging, analyzing, and throwing things out because it's not what you want, not what you expect. Expect nothing. Just sit there and experience whatever happens. And if whatever happens is you just float in a black void of point consciousness, You just are completely detached from your sense data. And by detached, I basically mean you stop processing your sense data. Doesn't mean you won't hear the telephone ring. It just means that you're not processing that data. So when you stop processing that data, you will no longer be aware of your sense data unless something intrudes on you from that sense data, but you'll just kind of stop processing it and just float in that void. Float in that black space and don't have a, don't float there with the idea, okay, now I'm looking for something. Something's going to happen and I'm going to see it. Don't have that. Just be there. Be open. Like you do when you're doing your art and you're, and you're wanting to, you know, express something from a a deep level inside you. Just get in that same space. When you, when you do your art, you're not, oh, I'm going to, well, maybe you are. Depends on what kind of art you do. But when you do your art, if you're probably in a space where you don't have a, the, you don't really have an idea of what the final thing is, but you have an idea of generally where you want to go. You know, but once it starts going someplace, it takes on a life of its own and, and becomes whatever it becomes. But that's just part of the process, letting it develop in its own way. That's kind of the artistic and the creative process. You know, once you have a plan, right down to the you know the last detail then it's no longer a intuitive process it's an intellectual process and generally it doesn't have that artistic quality to it it just has great technique but not great quality so the thing to do is have that same attitude where you don't know where it's going you have no idea and maybe nothing will happen and that's okay too just floating in that void is very relaxing it's very you know it's good you have energy when you come back from that and just sit there with an experience and as you do that you can you know you can have this intention well i would like to i would like to know more about the larger system and i you know i'd like to experience it and you go there with that just as a thought but don't let that drive anything don't push on it too hard just let it be there in your mind and if Probably the first 10 times you do this, nothing will happen. But eventually you'll get bored. And when you get bored with it, you will stop thinking about it, and you'll just kind of throw up your hands and say, oh, well, whatever. And then's when things will start to happen. Then's when you will, you know, things will happen. And the, the key is engage anything. Don't judge anything to be, oh, that's real, that's not real. Oh, I must have made that up, you know. I heard a voice. Was that me? You know, because I want to hear voices. You know, did I make that up? Don't judge anything. If anything happens, even things that are ridiculous or things that seem to not mean anything, like a little dot of light, engage it. Engage everything. And I guess if you get nothing at all, you can engage the void. (laughs) You know, you can just experience it, just be in it, expand with it. How big is this void? I'm just an expand myself and be part of the void. That would be engaging the void, not just being intellectual and sitting there and go, oh, well, I guess this is the void. Yeah, let me look around. See, well, it's kind of dark in here and I don't hear anything, so it must be in the void. That's your intellect talking. Just experience the void. Expand yourself to be everywhere the void is, you know, that kind of thing. So engage anything and everything. And engage it with your experience, not with your intellect. Going to judge it or analyze it or think about it. Oh, I saw a little something. What is that? Where did that come from? You know, that's your intellect wants to analyze it. Just experience it and experience it in a personal way, which is what I mean when I say engage it. Don't just experience it in an intellectual way, like you're a, you're watching TV. You know, you have to be part of what's going on. You can't just watch it. It has to be something that is a, that you are involved with, you're connected with. So make make connections. This is not a, you know, you're not watching a movie. It's not a screen, and the system isn't going to display things for you to watch and see. You You need to be a part of the experience. And the last thing I tell you is if you do that, and you've done that now another 20 times, and nothing much happens, use your imagination. To get started. If you, let's say what you'd like to do is something maybe evidential, maybe go talk to, you know, your twin sister or something, something you might want to do. Then start that process going with your imagination. And if you can get to the point where you forget that you're imagining it, which means you're so evolved in it, you know, you're so into what's going on in it that you really forget that you're imagining it, that's the point where it'll transfer over to something that's not your creation. Then you'll be getting the data stream from elsewhere. So that's another thing. That's another tool that you can use, but you have to get into the daydream. You know, when we imagine things like that, we call them daydreams. You have to get into the daydream to the point that you really forget your daydreaming. You know, and probably you've been in daydreams like that, where you get into something in your mind and, pretty soon you're no longer thinking about oh i'm sitting here at this table you know with a mug of beer on the on the bar and and uh, you know doing this daydream you're so involved in your daydream that you really forget you're daydreaming well at that point the system can very easily switch over to it giving you that data stream rather than you making it up in the daydream because you're already in an intuitive space at that point you're no longer in an intellectual space you're just experiencing the daydream. So I try that. So those are a few things to try. But it's often when you get discouraged and you throw up your arms and you give up that's when things start to happen. That's that's when things you know start to work for you because your intellect quits. Your intellect says, "Oh, I'm wasting my time. I don't got to do this anymore." And if you just keep doing it anyway, without any explanation, just just doing it because that's your habit now to do it, you'll have a lot higher probability of getting something to happen than if it's something you're chasing. I want this to happen. I want this connection. I want to see these things because then the intellect is in charge of satisfying your wants, in charge to to get things. And that's why it's not working. But it's not – just because you're an artist doesn't mean that you can get into an intuitive state in everything. You've just learned to do it for your art. And I think once you get into this and have success, you'll realize that the intuitive state that you're getting into to get different data streams is going to be real similar to that intuitive space you get into with your art. But you still have to get there, you know, on your own. Knowing one doesn't necessarily get you into the other one. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, you're welcome.
1: Looking forward to the next meditation session. Though.
2: Yeah, good, good. But don't look forward too much, remember? You're just going to just just gonna take it easy. Just be in the void. Yeah, don't say, oh, okay, now I got it. Now I've got the formula. I'm going to make this work. Now you're right back into your intellectual space. I got it. Okay.
0: Thank you, Gary. Uh, TD, nice to have you with us today. Please go ahead with your questions.
3: Okay, thank you. Um, uh, I think I'm gonna start with um, a question that is more about, it's about work actually, and about uh, organizations and applying MBT there. Um, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella has managed a huge internal transformation journey during his years at the company and he calls Microsoft's approach or culture for growth mindset. I think that's something he made up. I haven't found it anywhere on the internet. So I think it comes from him. And one of his core messages is make others cool. And, The Microsoft approach is the closest I have come to MBT organizational application when I have looked at the Internet. So if you, Tom, were to become the CEO of a large global organization where people play blame games and there is management by fear, what would you do? How would you work with the managers, with the employees? And what messages would you use in the communication? Uh, I think this would be very interesting to, to learn more about. And okay. I think this is something that maybe is helpful for many, since we all, many of us work in big organizations where there's a lot of
2: fear. Well, you have to. First of all, if I were suddenly the CEO of a large corporation like that, I would realize that I wasn't going to make any significant change quickly. I'd realize that I'd be setting my goals for over the next ten years, you know, something that I could accomplish in uh maybe get some results in five years, you know, and and really good results in seven, eight, nine, ten years, something like that. So it's not gonna be a quick thing. Because you have to work with people. If all you do is give orders, people will try to behave the way you demand because you pay their salary and they want to keep getting paid. So they will make an effort to behave in the way that you demand. But if they don't change internally, if they're still the same person with the same ideas, it isn't going to work very well. So you have to, you have to work with people. You start at the top and work your way down in the levels. You have to work with people and help them see that a really effective organization is going to be largely about a couple of things. One, processes, you know, all the processes of how the organization does what it does need to be efficient and effective. But the big thing is going to be people. It's people that make those processes work and you can have a a very efficient and effective process that just won't work very well if you've got people, you know, in that process that don't work well together, you know, that don't work as teams. Now you can take all those people and put them in a course about teams. You know, here's how you work together as a team. You know, you, you don't bully, you don't push, you don't have to have your way, you know, you're in a team and you have to do this together. And that may improve some behavior, but it doesn't really change people much. And though they will behave a little better and make things a little smoother in the office and in the workplace, they won't get rid of the bumps. It won't go very deep. So you can make some kind of surface level changes immediately. If you're the boss now, you can, you can change some surface attitudes but that would be just the beginning after you're done and you've had all the meetings and you've kind of explained your philosophy and the way we're going to do things here in the company from now on, don't expect the big change to suddenly be take place. And now you can go retire because you know, you told everybody the way they needed to be that won't work. You're going to have to stick with it, working at the top down until you get people to see a bigger picture that it's a really about the people, people who, Get up and are glad to go to work because they enjoy what they're doing, and their workplace is a place that they enjoy being. Those people will be two or three times more productive than people who get up and say, "Oh, geez, I got to go to work." You know what? You know, uh, and you, they have to get through their day. And going to work is the is the pain that they have to trade in order to get paid, so they can do things in their life that are more fun. You know, if the job is just a job in order to to fund other things, then you're not going to have very productive, energetic, problem-solving, creative employees. You know, I just heard something uh, today, earlier today, where somebody said that within a corporation, I don't know where it was, um, one of the big corporations, maybe Google or something else, they, there was a, a, a group of people, something that they took over and they did an experiment. And instead of working five days a week, they only work four days a week and they have a three day weekend. And they found that by giving people one more day of their own time, their productivity doubled. It didn't, it wasn't lost by, you know, one fifth, which is now, that's what their hours, their hours are put in or one fifth less. But the productivity they got out of that, was 100% they doubled their productivity just by saying hey we're only going to work four days from now on and it was an experiment and the experiment worked very well okay now that was probably because they that was in a a, you know a high-tech thing where most of the work is creative and cerebral you know it's a work that uh, it isn't the same as tightening a bolt on an assembly line you know that's a little different kind of, of of work and it needs a different approach. But if you have people who have to be creative in their work and if they are creative and if they are good problem solvers and they really do think deeply about what they're doing and care about it, suddenly they'll come up with solutions and ideas and processes that are a great leap forward. And if they're not really enjoying their work, they don't come up with that so much because they're just there getting through the day. Just trying to make it to the time when they get to leave and go home. You know, that's a different kind of a play. So you'd have to realize that it's about the people, and you have to help those people grow themselves up and see life differently. See their part there differently. And that won't happen quickly. That's a that's over a decade, you know. That's a ten year project to do that. So, I think it would be a very difficult thing to do, but I think it could be done. And I think there's, there's, uh, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to tailor your management style depending on the kind of workers you have. So, where you have workers doing uh, very technical work where they have to be creative and have to have a lot of deep concentration, then having them have to go to a meeting three or four times a day is probably a bad idea. You know, these are people that you need to leave alone for long periods of time. So just, well, it's a meeting, so everybody has to come, of course. You see, so that's not such a good thing. You may have to look at the different people and treat them differently. Maybe it's not one size fits all for everything. Everybody comes to the meeting. It's, you know, it would take a lot of creativity and understanding of the leader to actually get this done. But again, you start at the top and work your way down. Culture changes have to come from the top down. They don't come from the bottom up. But you'd have to start listening to your people. Instead of they're just, they're just cogs in our machine. And, you know, we try to lubricate them with, uh, you know, with good salaries and with other things. You know, we hand out certificates of appreciation and have a meeting every once in a while where we tell everybody how wonderful they are. And we do some humma humma, you know, cheerleading, uh, sorts of things and we pass out little prizes, but you know, how well does that work? You really need to get down there and, and get to know those people, get to understand them. What is it? You know, what's the viewpoint from the mailroom? You know, even some place like that, that's just a part of the administrative function. You know, what's the view down there from the mailroom? What do they think about working here? So you have to really get into your company and see what it looks like from all of those places to the employees there, really before you even know where to start. So it would be a very daunting job, and uh, it would be handy if you had, if you were the CEO, it would be handy if you had uh, a couple of three or four vice presidents that already bought into what you were doing and were going to help you out, because if you had to do it all alone, it would be very long time before you could do it because we're talking about people changing the way they see things you know, changing realities for people they're so hard to do but not impossible
3: mm. and i'm also thinking about all these great tools that we get at work these days with the i mean the digitalization journey is coming everywhere and and uh, there are so many ways for people to connect now uh, globally in big companies and they can collaborate much better much more efficient than we could maybe a decade ago but it's right. just the thing with the people
2: <laughs> exactly it's, <laughs> it's the people
3: it's the yes. game we play with each other that that is it's
2: exactly it's the people mm-hmm. but you you can change mm-hmm. their behavior by demanding that they behave differently but that is not a good long-term solution. That's mm. just a short-term solution. Yeah. And you will find that that, that those problems, you may suppress them in some areas, but they'll pop up in other areas. Mm. So it's not a, you know, it's not a matter of making up rules that force everybody to, you know, look like they're doing it right. You know, you can say, well, these groups ought to really get together and coordinate rather than just be in their own little stovepipe. So we'll have weekly meetings between these groups. Okay, people, go collaborate. That's not going to accomplish anything other than the people will go, they'll sit at their meetings, they'll talk about stuff that's insignificant to all of them, and then they'll go back because that's what management said they needed to do. You really have to change the people before you're going to get a a result. And you can only change the people by helping them grow themselves. So it's not like, well, if you were a really smart executive, you could come in and make all the rules and suddenly your company would you know, do wonderfully. Well, it might do better. It might do better for a while, but it's not really going to fix what's wrong until you let the people grow up or until you help the people grow up. Mm.
3: Well, it's tricky. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. I will uh, think about it and see.
0: What happened? Thank you. Thank you, T. Eric, please, go ahead next with your question, and then we'll follow with Frank. Those two sort of tie in. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Donna. Uh, Hello, Tom. Hi, Eric. So, my question is about the being level and the intellectual level. Um, I don't really understand why consciousness has both a being level and an intellectual level. I have no doubt that there is this distinction because my own experience confirms this. But theoretically, I don't see where it comes from and why it should be there in the first place. Is having both a being level and an intellectual level something that is just fundamental to consciousness? And if so, why? Why? Or does this distinction between the being level and the intellectual level only result from a consciousness logging on to a PMR avatar? And then uh, add some other questions, which is, does the LCS also have both a being level and an intellectual level? And what about when it was just a single reality cell? Did it already have both or did they have to be developed?
2: Okay, good questions. Consciousness really is, is a whole thing. It's not really that's divided into levels. Again, these are metaphors to describe things so we can talk about them, so we can separate things and, and work with them. So the, where we'd like to end up is where the intellect and the intuition work together as a team the intellect does what it does best the intuition does what it does best and they they work very cooperative with each other as a team so there isn't just the intellect and the intuitive side there's rather just this one whole thing this one whole thing is it you know can do logic and take logical steps and processes and judge and analyze but this whole thing can also gather information data and understanding that uh, otherwise isn't available in terms of logic so you just get a whole thing that can do both and there's not really a divider between them like well okay my intellect will do this and it'll pass that off to the intuitive part it's all just one thing and it just works with both and they both just you know I talk about they both cooperate like they're separate things but it's just one whole person and that person is intuitive and they're intellectual they just do both of those things So really, there is no divider between it. It's just one consciousness, and it's both. But now, so that we can talk about these individually, because this is where people get stuck a lot, is that they let that intellectual part, at least in our Western culture, they let that intellectual part dominate to where the intellectual part now runs everything. And when it doesn't have enough information, rather than the, the, the intuitive part just automatically Sliding some information in there that it needs, the intellectual part says, "No, I can't use that. Prove it. Why? Where did that come from? Show me the, you know, show me the the logic behind that." And because the intuitive side doesn't work that way, it doesn't have any logic behind it. It's beyond logic, and then the intellect refuses it. So now you don't have cooperation between the two. And that's what we have. That's what typical people are. You know, they, they, in our culture, they tend to be left brain because the intellect side has become dominant and does not work well at all with the intuitive side. But the person still has both. Okay. So you get lopsided and you get out of balance when you have both. You know, it's just, it's just like you have two arms. You got a right arm and a left arm, right hand and a left hand. And certain things you differentiate between those, you know, maybe you're right handed. So if somebody tosses you a ball, you catch it with your right hand. But there's a lot of things you do where the handedness isn't apparent. You just do it. You know, you pick up a, you pick up a bolt and it has a, a knot on it. You pick the thing up and you unthread it. You could do it either way, right or left. Doesn't matter. It's not that hard. You open a lid in the jar. You could do it either way and your hands just do what they do. They don't, They're not separate. They don't say, oh, I'm the right hand, and this person's right-handed, therefore I want to grab the lid with my right hand and hold the jar with the left hand. You just do it. You know, it just works. It's not really two things. Those two things just work together however it is that they can work together most efficiently without anybody ever thinking about whether it's right or left. Well, that's the way it is with the intellect and the intuition. It's not so much that the Intellect does this part and that does that part and then they sit down at a table and negotiate and decide what they're going to do. The whole thing just works. However it works together, it just works together. Okay. Now why do we have it and where does it come from? Consciousness is awareness. Okay. And when you talk about awareness, then you have to say, well, aware of what? What can it be aware of? Well, the awareness that consciousness has can be aware of information from, you know, basically two channels. One's the intellectual channel and one's the intuitive channel. But it's just one consciousness and it has awareness both ways. It's aware, it looks at somebody and it's immediately aware of how they feel. Well, that comes in the intuitive side. You know, and they also then might intellectually might ask, Well, how are you feeling? You see, and then they'd get some information about that which, um, that they could use. But because there are those two modes of receiving information, you can receive intuitive information that is, that is beyond logical. It's just information that you get. Not that you, if this, then that, just, you just understand or you just know things and you have this other process so you might think that that's like two separate processes that the conscious has in order to process data it can process data through a through a, you know an intellectual channel of analysis and through a intuitive channel of just uh understanding not analysis just experiencing and understanding getting Getting answers without having to go through a process to derive the answer. Okay, so that's just the nature of consciousness. It can be aware through both of those modes. You know, maybe that's a way to call it. Maybe they're modes of awareness rather than separate things. There's just two modes of awareness that one thing can use. And the the optimal, as I say, is that they both just work together without any partitions between them. They're just two parts of one thing. But that is seldom the way we are in at least in Western culture and Western culture is pretty much world culture these days. Most of us find the intellectual part very necessary and, and you know, it's, it runs our life and the intuitive part is kind of ratty and you, you know, sometimes it gives you some really neat things, but you can't really depend on it or rely on it. It's kind of a weak player. So we don't develop the intuitive side we develop the intellectual side tremendously we spend year after year after year developing the intellectual side you know we're not good at eat you know we're not all that good with the intellect when we're six or seven years old but we keep working on it and working on it and working on it and we get that intellectual side to where we can be really precise but we generally completely ignore the intuitive side excuse me so we We don't develop it. It just sits there and languishes without our development. Well, because we never develop it, then it's not all that reliable. It's not all that, you know, useful to us. So we kind of discount it. If we spent the kind of time developing our intuitive side that we spend developing our intellectual side, then we'd have both of them would be really good tools. But we don't because we don't find the intuitive side worth the trouble. So that's kind of why you have two. It's really not two separate things, two modes by which the consciousness can be aware and get information. It can just get it in a chunk, or it can logically derive it. It can analyze it, or it can just experience it. So that's why. There's not really two things there. It's one thing, but two ways, two channels. Again, it's almost like you can get information by hearing it. You can get information by seeing it. But most of the time, what you hear and what you see just kind of mix together and work together. And one fills in places where the other one doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, fill in so much. And between the two of them, you can really understand what a thing is very quickly. You know, you see a person and you hear their voice and uh, the voice matches. Yeah, that's my cousin Mm -hmm. Sue. You know, and, and then all oh, the length of the hair and the and how ha- you know how tall or big they are, or whatever that matches, and so you you can identify somebody in a glance, but it's part sight, part hearing, maybe part smell, you know, it could be part all sorts of things. And they just work together without you thinking about it. They've all been developed kinda of equally to do whatever it is they do in their own way. So it's like that with the intuitive side and the intellectual side. They need to just work together as tools and the thing that's interesting there is that the intellectual side has a really really precise uh process called analysis logical analysis very precise okay if if people really are good at logical analysis they'll all come up with the same answer from the same set of data because that's logic you know it's a it's a precision thing they won't be like 10 people, they all come up to 10 different logical conclusions. Logic doesn't work that way. You know, logic is precise. And the problem with the intellectual side is that the input data is usually not enough to make a logical or deductive choice. We don't have enough information to make deductive choices. Almost never, at least not important choices, you know, big choices in life. We don't have enough information to make a deductive or a logical choice. So what we do is we make stuff up. We make guesses. We do hunches. We do, uh, statistics. We say, well, this happened before, you know, what's the likelihood of these going up? So you have a precise tool and very ratty information. On the intuitive side, you have exactly the opposite. You have very precise information that's available within consciousness, all these databases that we talk about, you know, from person to person, everybody's netted. So you have access to a lot of precise information, but the tool itself is kind of ratty. Why is it? Because your intuitive side depends on how you feel, your attitude, uh, you know, your uh, your belief system, your fears, your ego, all of that stuff will color that intuitive side. So the tool has a lot of variables in it, a lot of things that you kinda all have to get lined up right before it works well. So now you have a tool that's problematic and an exquisite set of data. On the intellectual side, you have a tool that's precise and really ratty, you know, a lot of uncertainty in the data. So you see the two of them together really are perfect each one does well what the other one can't so the two working together you get a whole person who now collects all the data intuitively and collects the data and analyzes it and the two work together it's hard for us to do that because just like i told uh gary you know it's hard for us to do that because we're so in our life we're so intellectually driven that the intellect tends to discount and not pay attention to the intuitive side, unless you're doing very specific intuitive things like he does, which is art. Or unless you're you know, doing something else where you allow your intuition to, to play. But mostly the intellect doesn't do that. So then you have to tell people, get that intellect to back off. It's getting in the way. It's preventing you from doing intuitive things. And all of the paranormal things, all of the, You know, going out to other reality frames and connecting there, getting, you know, remote viewing, uh, telepathic communication, healing, all of the things that you do in the larger system with consciousness, all are done through that intuitive channel. So if you don't do them through the intuitive channel, you don't do them at all. That's the channel where those things are available. On the intellectual channel, though, they're not available so if you are working through your intellectual channel trying to remote view it just won't work and you'll decide it's impossible that's not what the intellect's good for so that's what makes doing paranormal things so difficult we tend to have our 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 left brain gets in front wants to take charge wants to immediately assess and evaluate and judge whether what we're doing is right. It has it happened yet. Uh, that sort of thing. So I don't know. Does that answer your question?
0: Uh, yeah, partly. So I was just to confirm if I uh, understand you correctly, um, because your model starts out with the assumption that consciousness exists. Does that assumption already assume sort of that this consciousness that exists also has a being level and an intellectual level?
2: So yes, inheriting- no, yeah, it co- comes in with the same with that assumption it says consciousness exists, consciousness is awareness. And that means that consciousness takes in data, you know, what are you aware of? Well, what you're aware of is is input data comes to you, you're aware of self, you're aware of environment, that's information that comes to you. And then you can be aware intuitively of things. And you can be aware intellectually of things, so then there's just two different modes to that awareness, so it all comes in with consciousness as the assumption the intuitive that it's just two ways that that conscious awareness can be aware. it can be aware in either in either way
0: so that would mean that the larger consciousness system itself also has like these two options it has a being a uh, being level and an intellectual level
2: yes. It's exactly like that. That's just the nature of consciousness, that awareness can be aware holistically, which is what we're saying intuitively, you know, just, boom, aware of something without having to derive it or prove it. It's just aware. And also an intellectual part that derives things, starts from small things and builds up bigger things from small things. So those are just two ways of of being aware. To different kinds of awareness, you might say, that that uh, consciousness has just because it's consciousness, and the LCS has that as well. It has an intellectual part where it can do analysis, and it has an intuitive part where it just knows what's going on. It's just aware.
0: Right. Okay. So that that answers that answers my questions. But um, as one sort of related question that I have is um, related to going out of body is whenever I'm in the out-of-body state or in a lucid dream state, I notice that as soon as I get into my intellect, as soon as my intellect sort of fires up, it brings me back to the BMR data stream. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering like, why is that? Why is there this connection between the intellect and the BMR data streams, like, why, why does that happen? Like, why wouldn't I be able to stay in sort of an out-of-body state and still use my intellect?
2: You can do that. And when you're a whole, when you're a whole intellect, not just dominant in either side, but you're, you know, or let's say you're dominant in both sides, maybe that's an oxymoron, you know, neither side is dominant. You're, you're sharing then that's not a problem. You can have that intellect doing analysis and be doing um, things that are intuitive as well. You know, be out of body. You can do both, but you have to have your intellect not taking charge. You have to have an intellect that doesn't step in front and say, well, I'll figure that out. Okay, do this, do that. Cause the intellect just makes stuff up, makes up, things makes up beliefs sometimes makes up ideas because it doesn't have enough information it's used to just figuring it out without the information making things up and going forward with it and if you're getting data in and from intuitive side you can't have the intellect just making things up you know it has to not do that so i think the problem is is when the intellect jumps in front it brings you back into this process now what i tell people is that if you, you know, we talk about an intellectual side and and it's really just the analysis, the judging, the comparing, okay, you judge something. Oh, I heard a voice, gee, who was that? Did I imagine that or not? That's That's your intellect trying to judge the value of that voice you just heard. Okay, so if you can let the judging, the analysis and the comparisons go, Because those things tend to be tied to ego. They're very tightly tied to your ego. And if you let them go, then you can just do all the thinking you want as far as direction. All right, that was interesting. Now I'd like to move more into this subject line. You know, that sort of thing. You're not analyzing, you're not judging. You, you know, you're just directing what you do. And you will find that that directing, will not bring you back you can do all the directing you want uh, coming up with intents well okay I, I had I talked to you know Uncle Fred and I got all that data I needed now I think I want to you know remote view what's going on uh, at grandma's house so that's your that's your direction but Would as you- soon as you say I talked to Uncle Fred and uh, you know I'm not so sure, sure he got that right and I'm gonna do this and that and you know, you start analyzing the data and start making judgments on what, what, whether the data was right or not. Now you're right back into PMR because the intellect now is taken over and won't allow the intuitive part to function. That intellect dominates.
0: So would you agree then that the thing that brings me back to PMR is not necessarily the intellect, it's more the fear? Like if I yes. wouldn't have fear I would still be able to stay in the out of body state and use the intellectual parts that I need.
2: Uh, You've got it. You've got it. That's exactly what it is. That's why I said those parts of your intellect are generally tied to your ego, you know, and your belief. They're tied to fear. It's that fear stuff that gets in the way. If all that's the point. It's not just that you're thinking, you can think at the being level just fine. You know, if you want to say that, and again, we're, we're making metaphors here. You know, I'm trying to say things that help people understand it. So you can't take everything I say literally, but it's more, more of trying to help people figure out the process. But yes, you can, you can be thoughtful. You can think at that being level without any problem at all. But when it's in the service of the fear, when it's ego, when it's belief, then it pulls you back. And when you're judging, it's the fear is am i just making this up or was that real so then you ask that question the intellect tries to solve that problem but it doesn't have enough information it can't solve the problem and that causes a problem because it can't solve the problem So, so yes it's the fear stuff in the intellect that's kind of why we we you know it's not the thinking that's the problem thinking is necessary all through the process intuitive process requires thinking too, but it's not the analyzing and judging, which is the fearful process. Yeah, exactly.
0: And so the ideal state to be in when you're out of body is to sort of be grounded at the being level always. And then from there, use the intellect rather than to let the intellect take over. Um, and perhaps I could say that that's also the ideal state when you're in PMR. It's like the best state to be is always grounded at the being level and then use the intellect from there. Whereas exactly. in reality, many people are sort of grounded in their intellect, so to speak, and disconnected from their being level.
2: Yes, so that is, per- that is precisely correct. And that is why when you grow up, evolve and get rid of more of your fear, you tend to live both ways you are constantly in touch with people and things and intuitive information and you don't have to reach out for them they're just available to you and you also can think about things and come to conclusions and do some analysis because if the fear's not involved then the thinking isn't the issue but when you you know it's when the intellect dominates it isn't just a player sharing the process of getting information and and dealing with it, if it if it's the thing that wants to be in charge, then that becomes a problem because that shuts off its intuitive side. But if but if you get rid of the fear and you're balanced and both your intuitive and intellectual side are working together, then you don't have a problem. And you can do analysis then without the fear, and the analysis won't bump you out. Right. A lot of the judging though that we do and the analysis that we do and the comparisons that we do are because of the fears that we have. They're there because of our beliefs and egos and and fears. So the intellect kind of gets tarnished because it's more tied to the you know, to the fears. The intuitive side isn't really tied much to anything. Intuitive side just experiences. It experiences but it doesn't really judge the experience. It doesn't analyze it. It doesn't compare it. It just has an experience.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. That clears a lot up. So it all makes sense now. Thank you.